Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad you're here. You made it. Uh, it's cold out there. You had to get up an hour early. We were, we were tested last week with such beautiful weather, 64 degrees last Sunday morning, and it's 16 degrees this morning. But you're here, and I'm so glad you're here. My name is Pastor Milo, if you're watching this later online, and uh, we're glad that you made it. We just finished singing a song Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We played a game with our students a few weeks ago, and it's, it goes along these lines. It's a classic game. You've played something like it before. It starts with something like this. I'm going on a trip, and I'm going to take two or three things, or I'm going to be on a deserted island, and I only get to take two or three things with me. What do I need? And so you answer that question. Here was what some of your students had to say when they were asked this question. Number one answer, middle school and high school, what do you need if you are going on a deserted island? You need a cell phone. Number one answer across the board. You need a cell phone. There was one person who said a cell phone so that I could call for an airplane to come and pick me up. Now that makes a lot of sense. A couple people said, I want to have a case or a pallet of food delivered to this island that I'm going to so that I will be set from that point on. Uh, My favorite answer of the whole time was this person said, I am going to take a microwave. Didn't really have to explain it because I started giggling and laughing at that person. Um, I tried to be pleasant, tried to be kind, but I didn't understand entirely what we were going to do with a microwave uh, on a deserted island. Uh, but actually, so what ended up happening, I was away, as, as many of you know. Uh, my wife and I got away for our 20th anniversary, and we went to an island. And we had to take a few things with us, a few things because uh, we didn't want to pack too much luggage. You have to pay for all the luggage you take and all that stuff. And so you take a few things with you. That's all you really take with you. And as you start to go through it, you start to think about what's important, what you need to have with you. And so from our standpoint, what we decided to do as we were traveling was to kind of split up some of the things uh, that were pretty important. Uh, So we decided that we would both have in our wallet or our purse, we would both have a $50 bill. $50 bill in case you get, in case of emergency, something happens and my wallet or her purse was stolen away from her, like we would have some way to be able to uh, get help, that type of thing. What we actually realized though, after being there, not for very long, that the other thing that we took with us was equally or maybe even more important was to have $50. One dollar bills because we had to have one dollar bills for everything. And I don't know about you, I don't have one dollar bills. You know how hard it was to get fifty one dollar bills? It was very difficult. There's a person in the church here who's a waitress, and we were able to ask her at the end of her shift. She was able to get us a bunch of one dollar bills because they had, where else do you go? They won't give them to you anywhere else. And of course, we didn't try to go to the bank when it was open. We waited until after they were all closed. It was the weekend, and nobody wanted to give us any money. So you need $51 bills. That's what we decided that we needed as well uh, with us. We were staying at an all-inclusive resort, so really you needed a dollar or two uh, at a different meal. You'd be able to tip uh, people if they were bringing and cleaning your room. You needed a dollar or two to be able 
to tip there, a few other uh, things that you would want to be able to tip for. But there was someone around the corner from us that was beating the system. And this is what this person did. Instead of tipping anyone at all, this person left, and we found out they were from Poland. They left Poland with an extra suitcase entirely filled with chocolate candies. And of all things, you should have seen the staff scurrying around trying to help this couple at all times. And he didn't give any money to anyone. He gave them each a piece of chocolate and they were over the moon for it. Isn't that crazy? Just something about it. He said, I think what ended up happening is that there's something about when someone knows that when I was packing at home, that I was thinking of them when I was packing my bags, that I was bringing something to them. I thought that was a pretty neat little thing. The other thing that we wanted to always keep in, in our hands was in my wallet, I carried both of our licenses, and in her purse, she carried both of our passports, because if anything were to happen, I wanted to make sure we had some form of identification in case uh, we got ourselves into trouble. On multiple occasions, we were going through customs, we were going through different uh, places in the airport, we showed them our passports. On multiple occasions, they said, you know, and our passports are now seven years old, by the way, uh, so they expire when they're ten years old, they said, you know that your passport is actually not valid unless you sign it. We have both had our passports for seven years years and we've never actually signed it. So what became even more valuable than our passport was a pen to sign the passport. And no matter what state of this country we were in or what other countries we were in flying in, no one had a pen. Zero people. And so today, this morning, I confess to you, both of our passports still are unsigned and that means that they are therefore invalid. But here we are. We made it here this morning. We did this exercise with the students. We said, your house is on fire. You have to run out the door. You have to grab three things. What would they be? And we desperately hoped, as you think through that scenario, would one of the things be that you grabbed on the way out the door your Bible? Was that on your mind this morning? If it wasn't, maybe we can get you there. Take your Bibles out. If you haven't already there, we're in Matthew chapter 19. We're in a sermon series in the book of Matthew. We started Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus asked his disciples, and they're saying, you know, who do people say that I am? And then he turns, and, then, and Peter responds, and he says, who do you say that I am? People say that I'm one of the prophets. People say that I am Elijah. People say I'm even John the Baptist, come back to life. But who do you say that I am? He says, you are Christ. You are the Messiah. And his response to him, he says, well, then you follow me doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. And even goes further to say, you pick up your cross and you follow me. And that's where we're going with this sermon series. If you've been here through all, all the weeks that we've been in, we've been marching our way towards the cross. This is week 10 in this sermon series. And so if we're going to have God's word in front of us, I want to ask this question of you this morning. What is the most important thing in life? What is the most important thing in life? I just asked you to think through in your mind, what would you grab if you were on the run out of your house grabbing all of your most important things? But what is the most important thing in life? And so we'll find that Jesus is going to answer that question for us this morning. He's going to articulate it incredibly 
well. So picking up with verse 13, let's read it again together. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. So for the disciples to do this, for the disciples to push little children away from Jesus, there's a few presuppositions we have to have. One key one that I want to get out there this morning. The reason why the disciples were rebuking, the reason why they were saying, keep your children away from me, is because these children were a bunch of brats. Said, keep those kids away from Jesus. They had some reason to keep those children away. They said, we don't want anything to do it. So is the most important thing this? Is the most important thing in life good children? Some of us actually live our lives as if that is the most important thing. For our kids to behave at dinner when they're there with their grandparents, you say, you better not ruin this dinner for us. Is the most important thing in life good children? children. Now we get to define whatever that looks like, right? And many of, of you, many of us, many of our peers that are particularly in a young stage of life run every which way around this community trying to make sure that they're raising good, decent human beings. But is that the most important thing in life? Is the most important thing in life good Children, let's continue reading verse 14. Jesus said, let those little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Okay, so let's open up the circle a little bit. Is, it, is the most important thing in life good children? Or let's, let's be more specific. Is the most important thing in life families? Is the most important thing in life a good family? I ask that question because what is happening here is as Jesus is traveling through a community that actually was not all Jewish. You know, much of what we read in the Gospel of Matthew is written to the Jews. But the people that were coming, they may not all have been Jewish. There's some commentaries that think these are outsiders that are bringing their children to Jesus. And so they are desperately looking for, they've heard about this Jesus and their families, these parents. They're saying, we want to bring him in front. We want to bring this child in front of Jesus. We want him to learn from him. We want him to bless them, to, to touch them, to be able to do these things. So is it important, is the most important thing in life to have a good family so that your family surrounds and wants the best for your children? In this case, even bringing them to Jesus. Is this the most important thing in life? You see, you want people to say, well, that, that boy, that girl, they came from a good family, so I trust their word. Or that, that boy or that girl, they come from good stock. That means something a little bit differently. That means that they might be of affluence. When we say those things, when we realize that everything can be sacrificed for the sake of a good family, whatever that means and however you would want to define that, but is that the most important thing? See here, when he had placed his hands on them, it says. Matthew says he places his hands on them and then he went on from there. He talks about the value of children. He said the kingdom of heaven, as he has said in previous chapters, he said the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. 
not belongs to the children themselves. It's not all about the children, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to someone who has the attitude of the child that would put their entire faith and trust. He's placing his hands on this child when he says this. But then he goes on. He went on from there because there's something even more important. This wasn't the main thing. This wasn't the main focus. This wasn't the main reason for Jesus' ministry. So what might it be? Verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain or to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. You can circle this, box this, put a star next to us. There is only one who is good. That's the main focus of my message this morning. The rest of the chapter kind of builds around this statement. There is only one who is good. There is only one who is good. And most of your translations will have one with a capital O to put all of the attention, all the focus there. Who is he talking about? Well, we'll see here in just a moment why do you ask me about what is good Jesus replied there's only one who is good and if you want to enter life he says eternal life keep the commandments he says this broadly presuming that this good Jewish boy would know what he was talking about he responds in verse 18 he says which ones he inquired because he knows them so well he wants Jesus. He's testing Jesus now. He's a rich young ruler is what we call him often when we look at this passage. This story is told in all of the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all cover this same story. They're slightly different, but they're all pulling out that this is an important story for us to catch a hold of. This rich young ruler and later in verse 22 we find out that he is young that we find out that he is coming along we find out he's becoming more and more important and right here he's stretching his muscles a little bit to see how important he really might be up against this new teacher that's in town which ones he required inquired Jesus replied you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus responds to him and talks about the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't just recite the Ten Commandments. These are picked in an odd shape, an odd order. They seem to be out of order, but you'll notice if you look at this list, every single one of these on the list has to do, remember when Jesus says, all the law and prophets can be summed up in two things, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are all summed up as the ways that people interact with one another. Do not murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You should not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are all in relation to how people interact with each other. These are the ones that Jesus hones in on. So we ask this question, is the most important thing in life then good behavior? Is the most important thing in life good behavior? And his response to the question, all these I have kept, the young man said. All these I have kept. I have not murdered anybody, check. I have not 
committed adultery, check. I do not steal, check. I do not give false testimony, check. I have honored my father and my mother, check. I have even loved my neighbor as myself. So I ask you this morning, is the most important thing in life good behavior? Because the reality is, particularly those of us who've grown up in the church, and heard these stories before, and and dug into God's Word before, is you'll start to believe this, and start to believe this about yourself and about some of the people around you, is that there are some good people, good people, and good behavior make salvation seem likely. That's what He's done. He's made equation here that says, I have lived a good life, I am a good person, and salvation, eternal security, eternal life seems plausible, seems likely, seems possible. All these I have kept, the young man said. Is there anything I still lack? He is waiting for the stamp of approval, I have arrived. These are good people. These are good people, people who have lived their lives well, people who have lived with good behavior. You are thinking of someone right now. Maybe you're the person that someone else is thinking of. Mike Flannery is a friend of mine. You know him fairly well and goes here at the church fairly often. And he jokes about this saying that they used to say in his seminary, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't date the girls who do. Good people. But notice here, all these have kept, I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Something is missing. He has kept all of these from his youth, he says. But there's something still lacking, something still missing, even though he has fulfilled all of them. So Jesus gives him the answer. Verse 21, Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Go, give your possessions, give them to to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You don't need your treasure here on earth because your treasure will be in heaven. Then come and follow me. In this chapter alone, those words, follow me, happens five times in chapter 19. First, at the beginning of the chapter, we realize that there are large crowds that are beginning to assemble and follow after Jesus. And even as we make our way through this passage, we see in multiple times, if you want to enter life, you need to follow me, he says. You have treasure in heaven, you come and follow me. Peter is later, he's going to say, I've left everything, we've left everything to do what? To follow you. It says, you who have followed me, and he gives them a specific task. Come and follow me, he says. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Give everything to the poor and realize that your treasure is in heaven. So it's almost as if we have to change the question that we've been asking. We've been asking the question, what is the most important thing in life? 
Are children the most important thing in life? Is family the most important thing in life? I'm going to change the question and ask it this way. What is the most valuable thing in life? What is the thing of greatest value? Because this is what Jesus is doing here. He changed the question. He changed the question so that this, this young teacher was able to see the point. Because now he's gone from a relationship with one another to now a relationship with God. He wants to be able to make the connection. What's the most valuable thing in life? And he starts going through the things that he has of value. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away what? Sad. Because he had great wealth. Jesus had just told him he said, give away all your possessions to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. But his response to walk away with his head held low, kicking sand as he went, sad because he had great wealth. So, when we look at a passage like this, we ask this question, because if I'm saying what is the most valuable thing in life, is the most valuable thing in life then, because I don't want to say it's money, that doesn't seem to match up with Scripture. So is the most valuable thing in life then giving away our money or our possessions or our things? Is that the most valuable thing in life? Let me say it this way. Is the most valuable thing in life good works? And we can start to play that out. We can start to play that scenario out. We think, okay, good people doing good works could actually inherit salvation. Because at first we said good people doing good things and, and, and being good in and of itself, that, that maybe that's not quite enough, although it seems like they've got it likely all together. But when it comes to eternal security, we say, okay, there's got to be something bigger. We look at a passage like this and say, if he had just been willing to sell all of his stuff, then he'd be able to inherit eternal life. This idea, this concept is a healthy one, but it's incomplete. There's a movie a number of years ago with the title Pay It Forward. It's a wonderful movie. It'll make you cry, it'll make you laugh, and whatever else uh, Ebert will tell you that it'll do. The idea, the concept of pay it forward is that it always has to be something what? Big. Something big has to happen. You have to give away something extremely large. And so the movie starts, we see this scenario where there's been a car accident and the person that has a Porsche or a luxury car, he hands over the keys to the car and he says, I just wanted to pay it forward. And as we watch the movie, we're drawn in and we see all these different ways that people who are just doing these really big things for one another are demonstrating really big efforts of love and care for one another. There must be something really special going on. And we really start to buy into it. That good people doing good works at least makes salvation seem 
plausible. We look at a story like this and we say, well, this must be the problem. It must be because he had all of that wealth and he wasn't willing to give it away. And actually, as we look through church history, there's been an entire movement over time in different seasons of church history where this became the thing, that actually a theology of poverty, that it was actually more godly to be in poverty than it was to have any means whatsoever. And so you see Christian monks who pull themselves away from the rest of society and live with absolutely nothing, uh, nothing at all. But is that what this text is about? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is that you have to have nothing and you have to give away and it has to be something really, really big and then you can inherit eternal life? No! That's not what this passage is teaching. Is the most valuable thing in life good works? Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. What on earth are we talking about here, right? For a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, some of you have heard. And I've looked through and studied, and I've actually been, been in messages where I've heard this before, where there's this story about a part uh, uh, nearby there in Jerusalem where there was a spot where the camels would come into the city. It was a really narrow spot, and there's this stone where they had to actually get the camels to get down on their knees and crawl through this hole to be able to get into the city. That story is an urban legend. From every commentary I read, from everything that I looked at, said there is no substantial evidence at all for that story to have any truth whatsoever. That literally what Jesus is talking about is speaking of something so absurd. The idea that a camel, which would have been the biggest animal, the biggest thing that they would see anywhere around them in that time, would be pushed through the eye of a needle. That's exactly what he's talking about. He said, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It would be easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's so absurd. It's so crazy. Look what the response of the disciples is. Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? You see, if there was a story, if there was a place where they could go to and see camels crawling through a hole between two rocks, then they wouldn't be able to ask this question. They would say, hey, there's a few people, there's some people who are able to accomplish this then. If this young man had just given away all that he had, then he would be able to, no, not at all is an impossible task that Jesus has put here. Which leaves us with this question, is there anything, is there anything that we could do in life that is good enough for God? Because it seems like nothing that we do, it would seem that there is nothing that we could do that ever seems to be good enough for Him. Is God just this, this God in the sky who's just always staring down on us, keeping us down, keeping us from doing anything successful, anything good? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them 
And he said, this is the answer to that question. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. It is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's impossible for someone with means, someone who is wealthy, someone who is rich, or someone who is in poverty to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. Verse 27, Peter is trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about. He answers. He always speaks first. It seems like Peter does. He says, we've left everything, he says. We've left everything to follow you. He says, what then will there be for us? Peter's trying to figure something out here. Remember just a few chapters ago, they're trying to figure out where will we be sitting in the kingdom of heaven? At which side of the throne will be my seat? Where will I be in the the rank structure? Where does all of this work itself out? He says, we've left everything. He said the problem with this young rich ruler that we just saw was that he wasn't willing to leave anything. But we left everything, he says. Is there going to be anything left for us? Is there nothing that we can do in this life that would be good enough for God? Is there nothing we can do at all? Verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have what? Followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or left brothers or left sisters or left fathers or left mothers or wives or children or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Here's the bottom line, friends. Nothing in life is more important and more valuable than following Christ. Nothing in life is more important or more valuable than following Christ. Are you looking at this list? This verse says they've left their houses. They've left their brothers. They've left their sisters. They've left their fathers, their mothers, their wives, their children, their fields. They've left it all. And Jesus says, teaches us nothing in life nothing in this life is more important nothing in this life is more value nothing is more valuable than following after Christ and for my sake he will receive a hundred times as much a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life now, I don't know about you, but when I read those words a hundredfold, something starts to go off in my mind. I said, wait a minute, where have I heard that before? Where have I noticed that before? And Jesus teaches on this, doesn't he? Jesus teaches on how his word will not return void. And when the seed is spread, that it comes back, what? A hundredfold. The irony of ironies, as we were there in the Dominican, this, this guy was going out handing chocolates to people. He, he spoke broken English. He was, as I said, from Poland. And we were there in a Spanish-speaking uh, island there in the Dominican, which I don't speak any Spanish. I used to be proud that I didn't speak any other languages. Now I'm not. I feel kind of foolish when I do stuff like this. But he didn't speak any Spanish either. And so he would just smile and give people chocolate. That was his thing. 
And they would come and they would help him and he would, he just loved this. But he said, this is something I do all over the world. And he came down, of course, we had this real deep theological conversation because he came to the hot tub that Aaron and I sat in. And he handed us two pieces of candy and asked if he could come and sit in our hot tub with us. And as we got to talk, he started telling me this story. I said, you know, something along as a why do you do this? He said, well, let me tell you. So I heard this story one time about a farmer. This farmer who used to go around the country and he would throw seed here and he'd throw seed there. And every once in a while it would start to grow. He said, so that's kind of what I feel like I'm doing with this chocolate. And he said, I kind of just give it to people here and there. Every once in a while it'll start to grow and I get to have conversations with people. And he just shared the gospel with me right there. And he's using little pieces of chocolate, friends. And I asked him what he did at home and he says, I'm a a contractor. I build houses, he said. He said, but I'm, I'm going to be, he was going somewhere, another country on a mission trip. In a few days. He wasn't a missionary, he wasn't a pastor. He just told this one story over and over and over and over, all over the world and carried little pieces of chocolate as he did it. And then he went and ran to his room and he came back, showed me a picture, and he had sunflower seeds stapled to the back of the picture. It was my ministry. The results that come back were a hundredfold. We see that in Scripture. This man, his name is Paul. He's doing the same thing. He's planting little seeds of faith, one little piece of chocolate at a time. Friends, there is nothing more important. There is nothing more valuable than following Christ. Verse 30 sums it up this way. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That doesn't make any sense at all. And at first glance, most of what we see Jesus is teaching, I'm sure they were always scratching their head. I just feel like if I was at Jesus' feet, I'd always be confused. And yet, it is so simple. Because what happens is if you understand and know who the creator of the universe is, then you realize that all the things that we do in this world to try to establish some type of hierarchy of how we function and interact with one another, that God says, it's all under my watch, under my control, and I'll make decisions as to how those things work. He says, well, how can you take someone from the smallest and insignificant places and make them higher and more powerful than those who are in the wealthiest empires. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. As I was looking through this, there was a sermon I read that John Piper preached. He used this text to be able to charge graduating class of high school seniors He made this beautiful connection I want to share with you this morning about another rich man we read about in Scripture. I'll summarize the story. It's an Old Testament story. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the rich story of Naaman. Naaman who was covered from head to toe as as this pagan ruler covered head to toe in leprosy. There was no cure. There was no cure for leprosy. And Naaman knew that if he came to Elijah, he had been told if he came to Elijah, Elijah might heal him. 
And so he comes, he packs up all of his supplies, all of his entourage, and comes there to Elijah. And he comes bringing, these are the, the things that he brings with him, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. And he brings them all to Elijah and says, I need you to heal me. And he has all of this wealth, this opulence there in front of him. And what does Elijah tell him to do? He says, I need you to go and dip and bathe seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman will have nothing to do with it. He says, I will not do such a thing. I've got beautiful, pristine lakes, bodies of water at home that I can go back and bathe in there. He says, you do this thing. And eventually, through a servant girl, he does that. He bathes, and what happens? He comes up out of the water, and his skin is pure and clean as a baby's bottom. His skin is young and new. And where did we start our passage this morning? The little children. It's interesting that his complexion is that of a little child all of a sudden. But it's interesting that that this Elisha, as he's there doing ministries in this place of Samaria, I, I didn't realize this until looking into this, that actually the amount of money that he brings is very similar to the amount of money that Omri, who was the, the Israelite king, that he paid for the whole city. And he brings that same amount because he is looking for healing. He says, I need healing in my body, so I'm going to pay the same amount that your forefather paid for this entire city here in Samaria. I'm going to pay that amount so that I can be healed. And Elisha says, your money's no good here. Your money's no good here. You need to humble yourself before a holy God. In a similar fashion to what this rich young ruler is being told to do. But here's a part of the story that I completely forgot, and I would guess you did as well. Elisha has a servant, an assistant named Gehazi. And Gehazi runs after Naaman. Naaman who is now whole and he is now clean. He has now been, this miracle has happened in his life. He tries to pay Elisha. Elisha won't take his money. Gehazi chases him down and he lies to him. And tells him, actually, Elijah told me to run you down, and he actually does want money. He actually does want to be paid. And he thought it would be really nice if I took it back to him. And Gehazi comes back to Elisha, and he says, where are you? I haven't been anywhere, he says. And the very thing that he pursued, this love of money, he chased down. And Naaman gave it to him freely. Gave it all to him. And Elisha says, well now his curse will be on you. And immediately Gehazi is covered in leprosy. Because that's what happens with a root and a love of money, a love of things, and a love of anything that would distract us from a holy God. Is it clings to you. And so now this Gehazi misses out on the beauty and the glory of God. He misses the main point of our message this morning, the main point of our text here today, and you want to shout to him and say, you're missing it. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more valuable than following Christ, and nothing is impossible for God. 
As the band comes forward this morning, we'll sing a song in just a few moments. We started this morning by talking about a song saying just before the message, I need you, Lord, I need you. The next song that's going to be sung, Great are you, Lord. You're the God of the impossible. You put breath into my lungs. I need you like I need breath in my lungs. Nothing in life is more important. Nothing is more valuable than following Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. And yet... The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Zs of Christianity. Some of you have heard that plenty of times before. But the gospel is this, that God exists and I matter to Him. That only God is holy. He knows my sin and my sin separates me from Him. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, you've missed it. And if you walked an aisle at some point in your life, but you've stopped living as if he had to rescue you from something, and you've gotten it worked out, and you said, I've done all of those things since my youth, you're missing the point. Nothing is more important and more valuable than following after Christ. Christ is the Son of God, the hope of man. When he goes to the cross, Jesus provides payment for my sin. He died and he rose again. He gives us the everlasting, never giving up, always and forever love of God. And through it we find life. That's the gospel. G-O-S-P-E-L. Life. Life eternally. That's exactly what we're reading about here today. It says, how do I obtain eternal life? God's only Son provides everlasting life. That's the gospel. Anything else? Anything else is works-based. Anything else is good, but it's not the good news. So if you bow your head and close your eyes this morning, dear Lord, As we come to your word this morning, as we allow your word to shine a mirror back on our own lives and see what is there. There are some here this morning who have never come to a personal faith, come to a personal confession of sin before you. Lord, they need you. Lord, we all need you, but they need a relationship with you. They've been trying to fill this hole, trying to fill this void with everything the world has to offer, even many good things. Raising good children, having a good family, doing good deeds. The Lord, they've missed. They've missed their Savior in the process. If that's you this morning, as one of our songs said earlier, I come, I confess. Lord, I need you. Would you confess that this morning? Admit that you are a sinner. Believe that you cannot save yourself. Jesus will save you. And claim the gift that he gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then, Lord, there are some who are here this morning. This text is a familiar one. The passages that I talked about this morning, they recognize, they know their way there, they know the addresses, they know the stories. The Lord, 
have we come to believe that we've got this thing figured out? Lord, that we can walk through life as good people and in the process, Lord, you'll say, that's good enough for me. Lord, there is nothing here that is good. As your word says here, there is why ask about being good. There's only one who is good, Lord, and we need to desperately cling and hold on to your cloak this morning. Lord, teach us to do that. Remind us of our own frailty, of our own sin. Lord, we're not going to get through this life. We're not getting into eternal life by our own deeds, our own actions. Why do we suppose? Why do we think that we're going to do that? We cling to you this morning, Lord, as the very breath in our lungs. Lord, we trust that nothing is more valuable, nothing is more important than relationship with you. Lord, teach us what that looks like. Challenge us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.